Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey guys, welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. I'm Mark, and today I'm here with Gail. Hey guys, how's it going? And today we're going to be doing another Ask Me Anything style podcast where you guys have basically submitted questions over the past few weeks, few months, and we're just going to go through a bunch of them and answer them as openly and honestly as possible. If you have a question where you want to ask us, go to authorityhacker.com forward slash ask and can submit your question there. We will be doing these kind of episodes probably about every two, three months. And we're also going to be answering some of these questions at the end of regular episodes, which where they're relevant. So the URL again is authorityhacker.com slash ask. So let's get into the first question, shall we? All right. So the first question comes from Ahmed, and it's about how to produce recipe content. So basically, he's found a good niche. And he needs to produce content based on recipes. But he says, in his own words, I'm an internet marketer, not a recipe maker. So how can he get the recipes, ingredients, directions, pictures, etc.? Is it okay to steal them? He asks. And how do we deal with that? So what are your thoughts on that one, Gil? If you're going to create original recipes, you're going to have to cook at some point. It's just the way it is. There's, you know, there's no way around it. However... What you can do to get started is you can do roundup posts and essentially do content curation. So instead of actually creating recipes, you kind of like do roundup, which we do a lot on Health Ambition, like the best like slow cooker recipes, for example. And what we do is we essentially link out to 20 or 30 recipes from food bloggers that actually do that stuff. And usually the way we promote these Around the post, which is quite successful, is we take an image from the recipe and we link to the source. So we give a backlink to the original, but then we pin that image on Pinterest and Pinterest generates a lot of traffic for us. And, you know, if we write some content around, the, the post can be pretty long. If you need it to be longer, just add more list items. And essentially, that also creates a post that can be optimized for a keyword for SEO. So together, you can get some traffic that is relevant to your niche without creating anything. But if you really want like a recipe on your site, then you're going to have to probably cook yourself, etc. Now, it's also interesting to know that recipe content is actually not, you cannot copyright it. Like you can copyright the words, but you cannot copyright the recipe itself. So it, like, you know, you could essentially rewrite the recipe and that wouldn't be a problem, but you also... You couldn't use their pictures though. It's... Yeah, the pictures you definitely need to like link back and ask them if it's cool. Uh, when you even when you do these roundup posts, and the thing with recipes is it's quite difficult to use any any kind of stock images because yeah. they just tend not unless it's a you know chicken recipe something super basic they tend not to exist. Uh, just one thing I wanted to mention is when you're doing these kind of roundup recipe posts, most people are pretty happy. You know they're getting backlinks and they're getting featured and bit of promotion. That's that's nice. We did have one situation where someone got really really mad that we like she called it stealing, but we were I thought it was like roundup kind of promotion. But someone got really mad at that and sort of threatened to sue us and do all these kind of things. So but you know she we, must be really busy if she does that for everyone taking an image from their site. But yeah, sure. Yeah. So I mean. 
it's it's not a big deal. I mean, no. we just simply removed, took hers down, and put another one in in the place, and and that was that. So yeah, just be aware that something. But that's you... why it's also a good idea to when you do these kind of things to actually reach out to the original source. And what you can do is you can actually ask for a social share. You can say, hey, if you like it, can you share it around? Yeah, I um, think we did that, and that's how she found it. Yeah. And she's like, well, oh no. So, yeah, it, it happens, but like you know, also a bunch of people share it, and they're like, "Oh, thank you for linking to my site, etc." Especially if we're like, "Yeah, we're gonna be emailing it to our email list and sharing it over around, so it should generate some traffic to your site, get people yeah. excited a little bit." And it's like, it's kind of a like you're not really wasting your time asking for permission only because it's also a promotion tactic to get like some shares and promotion for your site. Yeah. So as you said, the the first step is probably doing these kind of roundup posts. I would say if you do want to get into creating your own recipes and you're not a chef or you don't really know what you're doing in the kitchen, as it sounds like, then you can probably hire a writer on Upwork or Pro Blogger Jobs Board, something like that, who is a sort of professional chef or a semi-professional chef in some way. And perhaps someone who has a camera as well. And he or she could just sort of take photos as they go. It's probably going to be a fair bit more expensive than your your standard blog post content, but that's, I guess, the only option really if you if you don't know what you're doing there, unless you want to sort of get into learning cooking. Yeah, but uh, it's going to be hard to like make the photos look amazing and so on. It is definitely something you probably need to practice for several years before you get on the level of the best sites out there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Let's move on then. So the next question comes from Alex, who I think is based in Greece. He asks it's basically a question about income tax from affiliate marketing. So that's for you. Yeah. So he says, so you do affiliate marketing with Amazon USA and earn an amount in dollars. He said, you live in Hungary. Gail and I live in, in Hungary at the moment. So I guess you do your income statement there. Where do you get taxed and how does that work? And he's asking if he needs to get a U.S. tax ID or, or something like that. So when it comes to taxes, there's two things to consider. There's where you are, like you physically live. That's called your residency, which country that's in. And there's where your company, if you have one, is is based. So our company is based in the U.K. So our company pays taxes in the U.K. Gail and I live in Hungary. We're residents here, so we pay taxes in Hungary here. So we don't pay any taxes to the US. And so there goes the tax control. <laughs> no, I mean they're gonna be auditing us now. <laughs> it's fine. Like it's it's like super, super squeaky clean. I know, I know. Uh, but yeah, you don't need to worry about getting a US tax ID for that purpose. There is, I'm not gonna go into it, but there is a situation where European companies do need to get a US tax ID, but it's nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with the receiving payments from Amazon. So, yeah, you can just do that. The second part of the question comes around, I think he lives in Greece, but he's saying like countries like Greece and India where they have capital controls, weak currency, unstable politics. How do you keep money outside of your country? How do you do this easily? And what implications does this have on your income tax that statement? That is getting well, slightly out of scope. But... Oh, no, I'm going to answer it. He asked it. So there's two things to consider. When you say keeping money out of your country, you can, for example, I have a bank account in the UK that's out of my country, but I still pay tax in Hungary on the income I earn from our, our company when it goes in there. So just where the money is located isn't a factor 
so much on where you pay the tax on it. Of course, you can like cheat the system by you know having banks in the Cayman Islands or wherever else. But I wouldn't recommend that. And uh, if you get caught, there's probably some pretty serious penalties, especially if you live in uh, in Greece. Yeah, avoid that. And you also mentioned about the fact that you're earning about $500 a month right now. So what's the best sort of way to do it to avoid converting to your domestic currency? If you're making money on Amazon US, what you can do is you can apply for a Payoneer card, uh, payoneer.com. With that, it's like a prepaid MasterCard. I think it costs like $30 or $50 or something. And with that, you can actually set up a U.S. bank account number. It doesn't give you a U.S. bank account. It just gives you a bank account number. And then you can receive payments with that. So you can plug Amazon into Payoneer that way. It charges you about 1% commission. But yeah, works really well. And then you have a, a, a card you can use to you know, pay your hosting or your writers, Upwork, whatever else in in U.S. dollars. So, yeah, that's probably the best way to go about bootstrapping it. I definitely, definitely do recommend paying your taxes and keeping everything above board. One other thing, actually, as well, if you're outside of the EU or you're in somewhere like India, I believe in Estonia, they have this new thing called like digital citizenship where you don't actually have to live there, but you can create an Estonian company from abroad. You just need to go to their their embassy in your own country to submit your ID and stuff. And they'll set you up with like an EU bank account and a bunch of stuff like that. So there's a few other options in some other countries as well, I I think, but I I haven't really looked into it. So that's looking forward to pay VAT, that's a good idea. Yeah, so you can uh, so you can check that out as well. I'll put links in the description of this episode for that. So the next question, I guess this one's for you. Gary asks that in your podcast, Gail, the one you did with Perrin on automation, you discussed doing a content audit. He asks, what steps are taking are taken to do a good content audit? Okay, to be honest, that one could be a, a ten thousand word blog post. So. For the sake of everyone's time, I'm going to make it a short, but it's probably going to be incomplete because of that. The truth is, there's no, like, like I don't think there is one process for content audit because it really depends on how you've been building your site before. But usually what we try to do first is to identify the low-hanging fruits. So we use, like, if we want to get immediate results, we find the content that's ranking between number five and number 20 on Google and for large keywords, essentially. And we try to push these pages up so that can be re-optimizing the content on the page for the keyword or adding some internal linking to these pages. Also, another thing that we like to do is identifying the content that gets a lot of traffic but doesn't generate a lot of money. So on House Mission, for example, we have a lot of info content. And some of them are weird, right? We have one that's like, what are the health benefits of peanut butter? But I think if you Google peanut butter, we're like on page one, like really big keywords, lots of traffic. While it's hard to monetize that kind of content, because of the amount of traffic it gets, i.e. several thousands per day for that one page, you can still like create a couple hundred dollars a month at least by doing small tweaks to the page because of the amount of traffic. So, you know, we've added things like Amazon native ads that link to like organic, recommended organic peanut butter on top of the ads. And like maybe also use this page to internally link to pages that are more monetized to send traffic to these. Like, um, 
I can't remember what I did, but I think I linked to one or two supplement reviews from that page. I'm just going to stop there, actually. I'm going to just give these two things. That is the two things that we do. Now, all the stuff about removing content and stuff like that, I think removing content most of the time is not very important. I mean, you can remove content from the index without removing it from your site. So if you feel some content is really like dead weight, it's kind of the only case I would do that is when it's diluting kind of the focus of the website. So if on health ambition we had something about, I don't know, something that's really unrelated, some, like maybe something about politics or whatever that is, for some reason at the time we thought it was a good idea and in the end it tends to be a terrible idea, then maybe I would remove it. But otherwise, if you're not sure about content and you feel like it may help, may not, and it's kind of dead weight, you can just no index it with Yoast SEO. So before you remove any kind of content, no index it. And yeah, just then after that, just find the pages that are getting good traffic and not making enough money and re-optimize them. That's basically all we do. After that, we just refocus on new content for our content audits. But I think we can dev definitely develop a more structured process and that may be a blueprint on Atari Hacker Pro or that may be a blog post at some point. The truth is right now we're kind of like based on what we need with Jumpoint, we don't have a, a set process for it. So um, yeah, I think it also varies from site to site, yeah, like exactly. depending on the niche and like just the, the way we set health, and, you know, the way we've set up health ambition at the start, especially it wasn't particularly structured. So, horrible, you know, it's yeah. if you're following our sort of system, it's, it's going to be a bit different for what we're doing for that yes. from, from most sites. But yeah, low hanging fruit. A lot of people are going to learn a lot of new stuff in that program because a lot of stuff is very different from what health ambition is like. <laughs> okay, cool. So 10,000 word blog post coming soon on that. You heard it here uh, first. Soon, not <laughs> sure, but it will come. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the next question. This is really interesting. So Cohen asked, what is your why? In brackets, why do you choose to do the things you do? And when he sent this question in, I actually had to reply back to him, asking him to clarify the question. It's not a marketing question. It's a why are you running authority sites, why are you in this line of work? Why are you doing this? Why are you spending your life doing this, basically? And actually, I found it a very difficult question to answer in my head. I guess, like, I mean, why am I doing it right now is because all of the things in my life led up to doing this. I, I was the kind weather of, outside is really horrible right now. <laughs> it's pretty bad, actually, yeah. No, I mean, I, I used to have a nine to five sort of corporate job I, I hated that I'd always been quite entrepreneurial didn't like working for other people at one point I quit my job and went traveling and sort of tried to figure stuff out and yeah I was working online as uh, on Upwork actually or Odesk back then and just kind of like in this space like online marketing building websites that kind of stuff and when I met Gail he was doing something not too dissimilar or an SEO I didn't really like plan to evolve it this way, I don't think. It just kind of happened, really. Why do we keep doing it? Because it's fun. And I, I don't know. I don't know about you. I quite enjoy like figuring stuff out and building these like processes and little spreadsheets and systems and stuff. I mean, stuff for like me, that. for me, it's just another video game I'm playing. Uh, what do you mean? It's like it's the same thing. I mean, from my computer playing a game, there's a score. I eat a PayPal account, and my goal is to get a high score, yeah? and I just enjoy that game, you know, it's like, it's just like, 
I've always been that kind of guy that just like gets stuck into something very specific and enjoys the like you know when I play a game I learn everything about every item every character everything it's interesting you say that because I mean I also came from like a pretty uh, interesting get online gaming background as well so I know what you mean but are you saying that it doesn't really matter what you're doing it's just like the the process of grinding it out that's that you enjoy mm, like figuring out the best combinations like figuring stuff out mostly is what is interesting that's why i get bored when we have to scale stuff up like yeah. when i have to order like a hundred pieces of content i'm like ah please <laughs> but um but figuring out new stuff and that's why i like doing these blueprints as well etc like they force me to structure a lot of the stuff so that people can do the repetitive stuff for us after. I've also certainly felt like a couple of years ago, for anyone who's new to the show, Gail and I used to run a digital marketing agency. And to be honest, towards the end of that, we both kind of ended up hating it, kind of working for clients, that kind of thing. I've definitely felt like a big shift since we've moved towards building our own websites, own properties, own authority sites. And it just, I don't know, it feels much more rewarding even doing like the stuff, you know, the tasks you don't particularly enjoy. It's like it's building something which is it's not going to disappear tomorrow. Or yeah, at least I hope it's not. I, I don't sound very excited right now because I just received 20 emails of text broker refusing all my orders. So I need to rebrief everything. So that is a good example of, <laughs> of a grind that I'm definitely not looking forward to. Maybe you should reply uh, asking text broker what is their why. Uh, they actually they actually approved the exact same brief literally like two days ago. So I have no idea. But anyway, it's like for me, it's like it's just that video game. It's fun. And it's like. Figuring stuff out is fun. Managing processes, I'm enjoying managing a lot now, like actually building. Like we work a lot on Asana now. I'm like, I'm working with the people, like, you know, scoping stuff out, preparing everything, etc. That is fine. That is also why I don't write the blog as much because truly the blog is like, like I, I work a lot on the content we're sparing. Like, edit as long as, I edit for as much time as, as he writes, literally, sometimes more. But yeah, it's like I try to eliminate the grind, which is what annoys me and focus on the high level tasks. And what we do can have a lot of high level tasks, which makes it more fun. All right. So hopefully that explains why we're doing this going in a convoluted way. Should we move on? Okay. So the next question comes from Mark. That's Mark with a C. And he's asking about using a copy protection plugin for WordPress to prevent images, text, and right-clicking on his site. So I actually replied to him immediately when, when he asked this question on authorityhacker.com slash ask. But I also wanted to answer the question on this show just to let other people know as well. But my opinion is there's no point in using these these plugins. For anyone who doesn't know, there's, there's a bunch of these things out there. Basically, they stop you from right-clicking on a website. So you can't sort of right-click and copy an image, say. It makes it difficult to select text so you can people can't copy-paste it. But anyone who knows what they're doing is knows that th these things are very easy to get around. For example, in Chrome, just press Control U, and it's going to open. It's going to view the source. You can copy all the text directly from there. You can 
find the image URLs there and just copy them that way. You can even screenshot images. And it's really quite straightforward to do this. And I think it diminishes the user experience massively, not being able to right click. For example, oftentimes if there's like an internal link, I'll right click and then click on open in new tab in Chrome. And these plugins stop you from, from doing that. So you can do shift click actually. It works as well. I think it's control, isn't it? Oh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. PC versus Mac, but yeah. It just annoys me. It's like if someone does this, I'm like, I I will remember. It doesn't make me want to engage with the site as much. It's been a long time since I've seen a site that's, that's done this. I think maybe like six years, five, six years. Definitely sort of pre panda. I think now that there's this duplicate duplicate content penalty that Google has uh, in their SEO algorithm, sites are just not as keen to just directly copy things, you know, articles anymore. Or if they do, they just like scrape the whole page automatically or something like that. So, yeah, would definitely avoid using these these plugins. Anything else you want to add to that? No, I mean it's like it's okay to add things that can be annoying on your site, like an opt-in pop-up or call to actions or whatever like you will need to add some of these things to make money it's like otherwise you might as well just put a blank wordpress theme and (laughs) nothing on it and make it like look like medium.com but the truth is you better have sizable donations if you do that because you're going to make no money however in that case it is annoying and it literally adds zero value to your site so when you add an annoying element to your site which you will have to Make sure it brings a lot of benefits to you in exchange because that's going to cost you some gross percentages. You know, it's like less people will engage with your site, less people will link to you, less people will do that kind of stuff. And also happens when we put ads on the site, for example, but in exchange, we get money that pays for the content that comes up and generates more gross back. So it kind of like rebalances. Same with the the email stuff, etc. In that case, in every level, it slows you down without any kind of counterpart so not worth it yep that's a that's a good way of looking at it okay next question comes from oliver and he's asking is there any advantage to using full width pages like you do on authority hacker so he basically means where we've removed the wordpress blog sidebar yeah i mean so like obvious like is that like a obvious advantage not really it's more of a design choice i think like it just makes it cleaner it makes your site look cleaner if your site looks cleaner people are more likely to link to it i guess and once again i don't have numbers to back this up but it feels nicer also in content call to actions just really really convert way more than anything on the sidebar anyway so you might as well remove your sidebar and move call to actions inside the content like between paragraphs and stuff and yeah it it kind of feels like most people sort of put the WordPress sidebar in there with the about me, Facebook links, yeah. a few ads, and like maybe an opt-in and like we the have related posts. But we make money from it because we have CPM ads. It feels like people put that in just because because they feel like they're supposed to or because their theme's set up that way. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. It, it definitely looks looks a bit cleaner. Did yeah. did we like test the actual track any numbers on that? Like, no, see but if... like it's just like call to actions in content always outperform sidebar by like six hundred percent or something. Like yeah. you know, it's like not even funny. Guess so it's kind of like well... an ad blindness kind of thing going yeah. on there. So you might as well just remove your sidebar and put call to actions in content, especially if you're collecting emails. 
for ads, it depends. If you have like ads that pay you per thousand impressions, then it's worth having a sidebar because nobody clicks them. But like you don't care, you're paid per thousand impression. But for clicks, like we, I think we have like one AdSense on top of the sidebar and one media.net at the bottom that scrolls with you on health ambition. And they make some money, but yeah, especially with mobile becoming bigger and bigger anyway. Like all your mobile traffic literally just doesn't see your sidebar. So in content call to, like focusing on in content call to action and removing the sidebar to not make the page overloaded tends to do better. Yeah. So the next question comes from Andrash and he's asking, so he started a new authority site, but it's on the same IP address as his spammed old domain, as in his own words. And he's asking if that's going to affect his his rankings. Should he move that site to a new hosting now or just focus on, on link building? Uh, okay, I think all the IP talks, whether people are building PBNs, whether people are whatever, you know, I don't think it's very important anymore to Google. And the reason why is because CDNs, content delivery networks, is essentially a system that caches your website around the globe. You know, essentially like... People are not accessing the IP of your server anymore. Same for Google. They are accessing the CDN's IP, and millions of people use the same IP to access your, your site, essentially. It, it concatenates everyone's IP under one, and it hides your, the original content's IP. So uh, just put your site on Cloudflare, and the IP is not a problem anymore. So that's all the questions we have for today. We actually have one more. It's not really a question for us, but it's a question for our audience. So I'm going to put this one out to you guys who are listening. This one comes from Bibi, and it's all about, she's basically a stay-at-home mom, and she's asking, she had a few questions about, about that. So she says that like we, as in like most of the online marketing community, tend to be male. And she's saying that she feels like she has a, a different set of problems. And she loves working, like working very, very hard, hustling in, in her own words. But she's asking if there's like a smart way for stay-at-home moms to, to work and to operate and to get outside, play with the kids without, but still sort of hustle down and, and get a lot of work done without becoming a cave mom, as she, as she says. So this is something I have absolutely zero experience with. Teach your um, kids link building, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> okay, that doesn't work. Sorry. I like, I like how that's the first thing to <laughs> So basically, I'm putting this out to, to our listeners. If there are any stay-at-home moms listening, let us know. What are your systems? The How do you work? How do you manage your work-life balance? And you can actually leave a comment on this, uh, the show notes of this page. If you go to authorityhacker.com forward slash ask podcast, that's the URL. You just leave a comment at the bottom and let BB know what your response to that is. And any more insightful thoughts? Um, <laughs> let's say I'm like the furthest thing away from a stay at home mom with two kids. Or <laughs> so any advice is going to be pretty useless. Okay, well then uh, I think we'll leave it there. As always, guys, if you have any questions you'd like to ask us for our next podcast, we'll probably do that in around about January time, unless we get a lot of questions before then. And we'll also try and answer some questions during our regular weekly podcasts. If you want to ask a question, go to authorityhacker.com forward slash ask. So that's it, I guess. All right, cool. Well, thanks for joining, guys. We'll see you guys next week. Bye, guys. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.